Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from the New York Bloomberg Invest Summit, and I'm very pleased to say, joining us next is a renowned short seller, well known for his correct calls, uh, Carson Block, Chief Investment Officer of Muddy Waters Capital here in our 1130 uh, studios and in New York City. So Carson, um, you've been uh, sort of looking at possible short opportunities in China for a while, but your thesis is sort of shifting as time goes on and as MSCI includes uh, Chinese shares in one of its major emerging markets indexes. Tell us, can you explain how it's changing? Sure. Well, I mean, we pay attention to stocks from China because we like to short frauds. We're activist short sellers. So I'm fond of saying that China is to stock fraud as Silicon Valley is to technology. So we will always be looking at especially <laughs> you know especially US companies or Chinese China companies listed in the US but um, I think there's a bigger point and part of it has to do with the fraud and part of it has to do with other you know, geopolitical or strategic reasons but I'm arguing that US investors should start to look at China companies like sin stocks you know, where there's a moral dimension, um, you know, you're making a moral choice that, you know, is not necessarily in accordance with the best interests of U.S. and your kids and grandkids if you're going long these stocks. And, you know, on one hand, you've got the fraud problem. So, you know, there was a movie that came out, a documentary came out a few months ago called The China Hustle, and that profiled how there were literally last decade about 400 companies from China listed on the U.S. exchanges that were frauds. And so investors lost, you know, who knows how many billions when those things blew up. But no, hardly anybody has been punished for that. Basically, you know, I think only one Chinese company chairman ever did prison time in the U.S. The auditors, the big four affiliates from China, were going to have their practice licenses suspended for six months, but the administration capitulated and fined each auditor uh, each big four affiliate only $500,000, which is basically, you know, one year audit fee of a medium sized client. And so, you know, it's like Charlie Munger says, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Well, defrauding US investors from China is a, you know, heads I win, tails you lose proposition. Um, and, you know, it's like we saw the financial crisis. I mean, in that situation where somebody else bears all of the risk, you know, you're going to get bad outcomes. So we have that situation. But we also have this issue that at the end of the day in China, there's no such thing as a private company. They can all be made to do the bidding of the Chinese government. So, you know, since the technological edge devolved from the government to the private sector, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, we're struggling in the West to, to adjust to that because we have these private companies that control our strategic technologies they're running around taking investment from you know companies from China um, that I think in you know some cases, if not many cases, are making those investments not because they think it's just commercially a great move, but because they're being directed to do so by you know say the Ministry of State Security or the PRC government. And you know if you 
think like that's kind of crazy. Well, how could they do that? You know, private companies. Don't forget, the banking system in China is state-run. It's state-owned. You know, and financing. But they're opening it up. I mean, look, they're. I, I used to live in China and do business there, and so they took in foreign, you know, strategic investors, and that's actually kind of an old thing that happened in the early 2000s. And the idea, you know, a lot of these foreign banks bought in, saying, oh, you know, we're going to help them, you know, with their risk management. And I talked to a few people who were the, you know, foreign representatives brought in to try to make sure these banks were operating properly, and it sounded like it was one of the most frustrating jobs on the planet. Like they don't know what's going on. Um, so. Look, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think when you look at a Baidu and Alibaba, you know, I think a lot of their interest in making investments in the U.S. It's not driven by, you know, gee, this is going to, you know, make our platform, make our search engine, you know, that much better. Um, you know, just real, you know, case in point. Um, every year, there's a joint uh, congressional committee uh, report on the U.S.-China economic relationship. And the last report that was published this past November, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, I think it was very realistic about, you know, number of the challenges and, you know, the cheat, the IP theft that's rampant and the dumping. But they also talked about AI. And this was a surprise to me, but they said that China's AI is on par with that of the U.S. And interestingly then, they said that the entity in China that has the single most advanced AI, so in other words, our main strategic competitor is Baidu. And we give that company a liquid markets for, for security. So are we financing our own demise here? Okay, hold on one second. We just have like a minute left, but I sure. want to get your sense of, do you think that there are going to be imminent collapses of Chinese companies uh, coming up? Or do you think that this is going to be played out over, over a number of years? I think there's still a lot of frauds listed from China and the US. Now these are not companies where 99% of the revenue is fake. They're real businesses, but I think a lot of the profits are fake. You know, whether those collapse or not, I don't know. but. I am trying to start a conversation, and I think there's some other people who'd like to do that as well, where allocators really should be thinking twice about whether they should be putting this money into, into China stocks. So to the extent that we get some traction, that has implications for valuations, you know, we'll see. All right, well, we got to leave it there, unfortunately. We'd love to have you back and spend more time because, uh, you know, the world of uh, misinformation is not just confined to, the, to China, right? I mean, there are companies all over the world that you think are straight players. And well, I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, one company in particular in France that you've had something to do <laughs> with. Uh, and that's a, a, a story that I think could probably be made into a Netflix series, uh, somehow or other. But yes. so thanks very much for being with us and we look forward to having you more in the future. Thank Carson you. Block is the Chief Investment Officer for Muddy Waters Capital, speaking about uh, investments in Chinese companies. They might not be exactly what they seem. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Invest Summit from our world headquarters in New York, and it's my pleasure to bring in our next guest, Yusin Hung, the chief executive of New York Life Investment Management, joining us here in our beautiful world headquarters. Thank you very much for being oh, here. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here, now, thank you. One of the things, it, it, we'll get to a couple of things like you know alternative assets and, and so on, but I want to first understand a little bit uh, the specific challenges that you face because you work for people 
who don't even know that you work for them because they're going to be people who in the future, the big future, like 10, 20, 30 years down the line, they are depending on decisions that you make now in order for them to be able to plan for their retirement and a variety of their financial goals. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about how you take on that responsibility. So the right way and the way that I think about New York Life Investments is that we are the best of both worlds. So we have independent investment boutiques together with the heritage and long-term perspective of New York Life. And we come at this business really from an investment perspective. You know, New York Life is 173 years old. We've been through the Civil War, two world wars, the Great Recession, and today it's as strong as we've ever been, yeah. as only one of a handful of AAA-rated financial institutions around the world. And so we really think about this business and our clients the same way as we work in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. We take the time to understand the problems they're trying to solve, the challenges they face, and that's really helped me as CEO of this business to really think about expansion. Yeah. So we've moved significantly outside the U.S. into Europe and Asia through additions of boutiques. We've really leaned very heavily into alternatives, an area that I know quite well. Well, let's talk about alternatives, actually. I want to go there because when you talk about the needs of your clients, one need is for yield, especially in this financial repression era. What alternatives are you going into and how concerned are you about the glut of cash sitting on the sidelines and pouring into things that people aren't as familiar with? You know. As a general rule, I believe alternatives have a role in every portfolio. What we've been seeing is equity markets are fairly elevated, interest rates are climbing, greater volatility. And so in this market environment, our advice to clients is really to think about what exposures they can introduce to dampen volatility. Maybe introduce a little bit of inflation sensitivity, but in general, diversify. And so what we like, we have a platform called Index IQ that has really developed some interesting ETFs. They were the pioneer in alternative ETFs. And so things like Roof, which is for real estate, or M&A for merger arbitrage strategies, or even QAI, which is a diversified multi-strat. And so our view is there are many ways for investors to add these elements to their portfolio and really an dampen it. Is that an structure, an ETF that has alternative assets that aren't as liquid? You know, those are actually liquid. They're just like the ETFs that we all know, right? Daily liquid, transparent, low cost. And that's why they offer such an interesting value proposition. Because today, if you're an individual investor, you can buy one of hundreds of ETFs, one of thousands of mutual funds. But if you want alternative exposure, you don't have a lot of choice, like institutions do today. They want to go into real estate or private equity. Now just to uh, give people a little detail, some of the subsidiaries that uh, come under your umbrella, I believe Mackay Shields, the uh, mutual fund right. company, uh, also Cornerstone, right? Uh, Ausbill, the uh, investment management firm. How do you decide who fits with the New York life investment management sort of zeitgeist? You know, we really are carefully select the boutiques that we bring under our umbrella. Clearly what's important to us is really investment excellence and uh, strategies that we think really make sense for uh, investors' portfolios. But just as important to us is cultural fit. We're an institution at New York Life that really believes in 
putting our clients first, mm -hmm. solving their problems. And so what's important to us is that we have a set of capabilities, specialists by boutique, and that affords us the opportunity to have the building blocks so that if we're having that conversation with clients, we know how to put together good portfolios. So we just have about a minute left, and I'm wondering, you know, a lot of people are worried that perhaps we are seeing too elevated uh, evaluations, we could crash. Other people worrying that they're going to pull out too soon. Which is the biggest worry for you? You know, all of these are legitimate worries. What keeps you it's up at night? It's very interesting that last year we had a lot of worries, but the market seemed pretty confident. This year we have a lot of worries and there's a lot of anxiety. My view is one of a long-term view. Look, clients really have not only return expectations, but they have obligations and needs to meet. And that's really our focus, because we have all the pieces to help them achieve their goals. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, thank you for participating in this day where a lot of really interesting ideas are being uh, thrown out there and discussed. Uh, Yishin Hung is Chief Executive Officer of New York Life Investment Management. She has helped to expand the company and, uh, and, and plow further into alternatives, which has been one of the hottest areas over the past few years as people try to diversify, and frankly, as they see a lot of the equity markets uh, as being somewhat overvalued, as well as bond markets, which have been uh, uh, certainly affected dramatically by central banks around the world. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Invest Summit in New York. Our next guest manages more than a trillion dollars as chief executive of PGIM. David Hunt, president and chief executive, uh, joining us now. Thank you so much for oh, being thank you for having me. with us. Um, you said on the panel that you were just on that you are worried about the U.S. equity market, that it is not in good shape because fewer companies are opting to go public and stay public, and this reduces opportunities for uh, retail investors. Can you talk about what the consequences are of this in your view? Sure, here's the uh, parlor trick question for you. How many stocks are in the Wilshire 5000? Well, answer, 3,600. In fact, we used to have uh, over 7,500 stocks in the U.S. if you go back 15 years. Um, we've had a huge drop in the number of publicly traded companies. At the same time, uh, the level of IPOs are literally at half of the level that they were a decade ago. So what's happening? What's happening is that a lot of the higher growth companies, some of them are technology, but uh, health sciences and others, are choosing to stay private. And so whereas 10 years ago, everyone's dream was to ring the bell and, and really come out uh, in the public way, now they're very happy to take uh, another slug or a second round of private financing from the private equity realm um, and stay private. And uh, that really does have important implications. So we've got fewer stocks, we've got fewer growth stocks coming in, and we've got a private equity industry that has a trillion dollars of dry powder. Now leverage that a few times and you're talking about real money. So you've got a lot <laughs> even more of these companies are uh, likely to choose to stay private. And here's a prediction. I think that some public companies um, will choose to go private. Uh, we saw that, uh, that we saw that in, in, in spades last year for the first time uh, dramatically, and I think we'll see it uh, some more. So what does that mean then for, uh, for the markets? It obviously means there's less choice 
uh, for, uh, for investors, but it more fundamentally means that these growth stocks that were available to retail investors through the public markets now are actually having their returns come up through private equity and into the institutional market. And um, I think that that goes against a little bit of the democratization of uh, the capital markets that we've enjoyed uh, in the United States for a long time. And I don't think people have really taken on the overall kind of implications and consequences of that uh, and, and the weakness in our public equity markets. Is that because the amount of money that is available in private equity investments is so great and growing that in a sense it doesn't matter whether you take money from the public or the private sector in terms of the actual amount of money, and yet the public sector comes with a lot of rules, regulations, and quarterly reports. Yeah, I think that there's a multitude of reasons, um, and you've, you've hit on many of them. I think there's been the burdens of being a public company, uh, and I think that the Sarbanes-Oxley was a bit of a flashpoint uh, for that. I think also to, to, to give private equity its due, they have become a lot better owners over the course of the last uh, 15 years. In the early days, this was a bit of a financial engineering move, and now they actually have turned out to be good long-term investors. They're Wait, investing in the businesses. I have to, I have to inter interject there because there's been a lot of publicity around the retail apocalypse and a lot of fingers pointing at private equity companies that added quite a bit of leverage to some of these retailers that seems unsustainable. Uh, in retrospect, I'm thinking Toys R Us, Bonton, you know, pick your company. I'm just wondering, do you think that that is an inadequate sort of representation or sort of a, an unjust representation of what private equity has done? Broadly, I would say it is. I think that the, uh, the overall returns of the private equity business have been uh, quite attractive. And if you're certainly in one of the better funds, you've done extremely well, and you've done it in a way that is, to some extent, non-correlated, because they can time when they want to get out of their investments to the underlying investment uh, equity businesses. So I actually think that they've done, uh, broadly, quite a good job. Would the public markets have made those decisions sooner or better? I'm not really sure. Does this then beg the question about passive investing versus active investing, particularly with the explosion in exchange-traded funds where you don't actually buy a specific company and therefore you have no allegiance to their long-term plan or strategy or even to their management? That's partly true. Um, on the other hand, the irony is that if you're a passive manager, you actually are a long-term investor because as long as that company is in the index, uh, the ETF is going to also remain an investor in that. But what you do lose is having analysts who are following that particular stock. And so we have many fewer people who are actually understanding the fundamentals of a business. Um, and I do think that that is a back another reason why you have many fewer companies going public, because you have many fewer analysts who are covering mid-sized companies from the sell side. There's been a dramatic fall in uh, the amount of money and people on the sell side who are doing the kind of high quality research that's required for these. One thing that strikes me though is that as people worry about overvaluation in the equity markets and a lack of diversification, they're going increasingly to alternatives and investing more money in private equity companies, which do have that a trillion dollars of uh, dry powder sitting on their books. How worried are you that valuations in private markets have gotten way far ahead of themselves and are poised for some sort of correction? You know, it's, it's interesting how different uh, the allocations are by investor group. And I think you really have to make these comments about individual client types. 
for most of my professional life, uh, if you were to just guess the asset allocation of a pension fund, whether public or private, and said 60-40, you would be within five percentage points of being right. Um, and they really went down a very balanced uh, investment approach. That is absolutely not true today. If you go into a, uh, a corporate plan today, for the most part, they have a de-risking plan in place. They have moved significantly to take risk off the table. They are much more into fixed income. And their holdings actually of alternatives and uh, even equities overall is at some of its lowest levels. Interesting. And yet, almost in complete contrast, if you walk down the street and you visit the public plan, uh, you find that they've gone in the other direction. Uh, they have actually decided to re-risk They've moved significant money into real estate, into privates, uh, uh, private equity, uh, and into hedge funds. And they are trying uh, very hard to work their way out of their underfunded situation through investment returns. And so you have these two groups that have diametrically different uh, approaches to what's essentially the same problem, which is how do you meet the very important promises that they've made to their workers. Thank you very much for being with us. David Hunt is the president and the chief executive of PGIM, P-G-I-M. They are the investment management business of Prudential Financial, helping to manage more than $1.2 trillion of assets. Much appreciated and thank well, you thank for being you for with having us me. here at our Bloomberg that Invest Summit. That was fascinating. Summit. The idea of public and private pensions having the exact opposite aims. You have to wonder, who's got it right? Well, Pim, the $1 trillion Apple valuation stories have started to be plastered all over media across the board. Everyone's getting ready as Apple's market capitalization reaches $950 billion. So has it gone too far too fast? Are the FAMG stocks uh, is a little bit overvalued at this point or is this just the beginning of a massive bull run? Here to sort of lay out the arguments on either side is Shira Ovide. She's technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and uh, contributor, to, uh, contributor to Bloomberg Markets AM. Um, Shira, thank you so much for being with us. So um, let's just start with the people who say that this is something that can keep going, uh, that even though the biggest six U.S. tech companies account for more than $4 trillion of market capitalization, this is just the beginning. I mean, if you look at the story of those tech giants, and, and you could include Alibaba and Tencent in that mix too from China. It's a story of revenue growth, earnings power, pricing power, uh, global businesses, and the ability to kind of invest money. All of those companies are investing near record amounts in uh, research and development and capital spending. So they're looking to the future, and it's hard to imagine at this point that anything is going to slow them down, right? So that's the kind of bull market for the tech giants of the future and the, and the current. Well, don't we, let's look at some of the kind of valuations because that's why I always like to kind of understand this. Um, let's say you had a business that did, uh, I don't know, $246 uh, dollars in sales a year. But out of that 246, you got to put more than 50 of that in your pocket after you paid for everything, lollipops, water, whatever it is. And someone said, you know, I want to buy that whole business and I'll give you a thousand bucks for it. That's Apple. That's basically what Apple is. 
At least that's what the numbers tell you. Yeah, and, and depending on how you look at it, some of these tech companies are not really richly valued. So Apple, as you mentioned, is trading at something like 15 times forward earnings. That's on the high side for Apple historically, but Apple has always been this company that is that is relatively inexpensive um, if you look at the growth rates. Now, Apple's growth rate is coming down, um, and you got companies on the other side of the spectrum like Amazon, who is expensive by conventional uh, price-to-earnings metrics. But if you believe that these companies can continue to grow earnings and continue to have pricing power and have an ability to kind of control the future of technology spending, then those big tech company shares don't necessarily look overvalued. Um, I will say, though, that it's hard to kind of make an argument for technology stocks as value plays because of the extreme binary outcomes in technology that when technology shifts, when you have this kind of wholesale shift in technology as we did, um, you know, 10 years ago when smartphones started to become popular and prevalent, it can create winners and losers nearly overnight. To the, you know, Nokia doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Microsoft does. Microsoft does. And, Microsoft and they is bought a, Nokia. Microsoft is an exception, I think, where it was prevalent in previous eras of technology and has man managed to find its footing again, but they're the exception that proves the rule, I think. So then let's talk about the bear case here. Is there something that people are concerned about as they watch valuations climb? Look, I think the concern for me is this FAMG era, to use the terrible acronym, has been a phenomenon <laughs> of the last decade when we've basically had um, steadily strong growth in both global GDP and stock markets. And I don't know whether the story of earnings growth and, and revenue growth can continue for those tech companies in a slow, in a much slower global economic growth scenario. I don't Although think we've proven, we've seen the ability to prove that case I, out. I guess that one question would be, would these stocks, would these companies suffer disproportionately in a downturn, or would they go down along with everything else? And at this point, are they like the proxy for, <laughs> for everything anyway, because they're just such a dominant player? It's true, and I, I don't know that I have an answer to that. My broader point is that it's just not tested, right? That you know, Facebook didn't exist, uh, it was not a public company at least, in 2008, right? Um, Alibaba was not a public company in 2008, so we haven't really seen these companies get tested when um, global economic growth goes down the tube. So that'll be interesting. And then regulation to me is a big wild card that it's hard to quantify it, but as these companies get bigger, you know, success in a way becomes a problem for them. It puts a target on their back with global regulators and politicians. So we'll just have to wait and see. I guess that's the, the well, point. But I mean, uh, you can make the argument that they're going to fall. Listen, if the stock market falls, they'll fall. Well, I mean, I there's no going to be exceptions. Yeah, and as, as Lisa said, it's a little bit of a circular logic since they're such a large part of the stock market, right? right that if they fall, the stock market falls almost by definition. Well, but I will say, and we just, we have less than a minute left, but Pim raised a good point before this segment. He was talking about how Apple is trying to create technology to reduce people's usage of smartphones. You do have to wonder how much people are going to vilify smartphone addictions and how that will play into this entire cycle uh, going forward. I agree, and it's, I think, again, it's an issue for tech that's hard to quantify, but also important to pay attention to, this kind of backlash against technology in general. All right, well done. Thank you very much. Shira Oviday, as always, we enjoy having you with us and uh, giving us your perspective, our technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Be sure to follow Shira online on Twitter at Shira Oviday.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.